If you have found Mark chapter 9, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 9. Jesus and the three disciples went up to the Mount of Transfiguration there. They went to pray. Jesus was changed before them. God spoke. They They fell on their faces. When they looked back up, there is Jesus alone by himself. And then this happens. Mark chapter 9. Beginning with verse 9. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 9. And as they're coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would help us today. that you would bring healing and hope and strength, that you'll use this picture of the glory of your son Jesus to strengthen our souls, that you would revive your church, God, that you would give hope where there has been none. Lord, I pray that you would make it so that we walk out of here today feeling lighter and joyful, and that joy would be In your Son, Jesus, it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think most of you would agree with me that vacation is a wonderful thing. If your normal life is stacked with work and early alarms and long days and multiple frustrations and mounting stress and a prevailing tiredness, A vacation from that can feel like heaven on earth. Unless you got small children, then it's just work somewhere else. Every every summer, Connie and I take a vacation to a place called St. George Island. It's off the coast of Apalachicola, Florida, in the Gulf. And life on vacation is completely different. Alarms are not set, schedules are not made, appointments are not kept, plans are not put forth, there are no expectations. I get up when my eyes open up, go and drink a pot of coffee, read the Bible, spend some time praying. I might go do a little exercise for my conscience. Then we'll go out to the beach, and I'll sit there and just read. I'm to the age now where... Um, I don't want to sit out in the sun the whole day, so we're under some sort of shade. We've tried every kind of shade that there is. And sit under the shade and read, and we get tired of that, walk down the beach, come back, read some more. Do that until it's time for supper. Go eat some supper, go to bed, do the same thing tomorrow. Vacation. It is a glorious pocket of time carved out of real life. 
but it's not real life. Nick and Meredith don't know. They're on the honeymoon. It's a glorious pocket of time. They're young. They don't know. It's carved out a real life, you see, but it's not real life. R real life is where we live. In the story before us, three disciples go up the hill with Jesus to the mountain of transfiguration. They have just experienced a pocket. They've just experienced the most glorious event of their young lives. The transfiguration has happened. Mark 9 tells us that, that Jesus was changed before them, that his clothes became radiant. They were intensely white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And not only that, standing there with Jesus is Elijah and Moses. Somebody here asked me uh, this past week, how did they know it was Elijah? I don't know. They had a name tag. I don't know. <laughs> Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus. They are talking with Jesus about his departure. It is a glorious thing. God spoke. The disciples fell. Moses and Elijah go away. Jesus is there by himself. And now... Now, as the transfiguration starts to fade, they realize everything has changed. And in this passage, as they're coming down the mountain, we have three disciples trying to figure it out. What they don't yet know is that, what they don't yet know is that all of history has come together in this moment. All the prophecies, all the law of God have pointed to Jesus. And as they descend the mountain, Jesus is coming down the mountain of transfiguration. He's carrying the entire weight of redemptive history. And these three disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, and Peter, these three disciples will spend the rest of their lives in light of that glory. Even Peter, when he writes about it in 2 Peter, Peter would say, I was an eyewitness to his majesty. Majesty, the majesty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus was good for their souls. It would last them a lifetime. I've been thinking about this. Why is the transfiguration here? What is this passage? What good is it for me? I mean, I want, I want that. I want to be strengthened in the Lord. I want to be happy in the Lord. I want to be joyful. I want to live my life being able to bear up under the strain. What does this have to do with that? I want this to be something good for me. I want this to be something good for you, for your soul, so that you walk out of here, you are able, because of the glory of Jesus, to live everyday life with joy. So I didn't know how else to say it other than the glory of Jesus. Here's the sermon theme. <clears throat> the glory of Jesus is good for our souls. Let's go back to the passage. Let's walk through it like we oftentimes do, and then we'll come back and um, maybe make some applications, some life applications. 
Join me there in verse 9. Before verse 9, the transfiguration has happened. Moses and Elijah now are gone. The disciples are getting up off the ground. They are, they're, they're wiping the dirt off and begin to walk down the mountain. It's not a small mountain, probably six, seven, maybe 8,000 feet high. It'll take hours and hours to get down the mountain. And as they're plodding down the mountain, they have a conversation. <clears throat> verse 9. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them, tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, it's not unusual for Jesus to tell people, don't tell. But oftentimes, they will go and tell. Even after Jesus says, don't tell anybody what's happened here, they tell. And the mobs come around Jesus. This time, Jesus says this to the disciples. Verse 10 says that they kept that. They, they, they kept it. It's interesting, this is the very first time that when Jesus has told the disciples to not tell something, he puts a time limit on it. See how he says it in verse 9? Don't tell anybody until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. It's interesting that, that he's done that because here's what he knows. <clears throat> if you go and tell what you've seen with Elijah there and Moses there, the Jews who had great reverence for Moses and great reverence for Elijah, and they know that they have, those two have come to be with Jesus, they will make Jesus the king on earth. He's not here for that. Don't tell it yet until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Verse 10, they're, they say they won't tell, and they don't tell. Peter lets us know they don't tell it, but they're asking a question. What does this mean, rise from the dead? That's a new concept. We look back and we're familiar with the resurrection of Jesus. They do not know yet that the Son of Man is going to be raised from the dead. They know that a general resurrection comes one day when everybody will be raised from the dead and judged. But what does this mean, the Son of Man rise from the dead? So they're having that conversation as they come down the hill. And it uh, seems like that's going nowhere. So they bring up another topic in verse 11. It, it stands to reason they bring up Elijah. He was just there. They just saw him. And so in verse 11 tells us, they asked him, why do the scribes, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why is that the prediction? Because we haven't seen Elijah. So Jesus begins a partial answer and then asks a question in verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first. Elijah does come first to restore all things now, he's talking about John the Baptist. They've not picked it up yet. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and prepared the way. He preached so that those who heard would be ready for the coming Messiah. But Jesus instead here in verse 12 turns the question back to himself. Verse 12. How is it written of the Son of Man? Here he's calling himself the Son of Man again. That would connect with Daniel chapter 7. How is it written of the Son of Man? that he should suffer many things. You guys have in your mind a Messiah that's going to rule. How is it written that he would suffer many things and also be treated with contempt? And then verse 13, Jesus carries the conversation back to John the Baptist. And this is who he's talking about here. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come. Not in the transfiguration. <clears throat> he's already come. And they did to him, remember Herod? They did to him 
whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Okay, so as they come down the hill, having this conversation, let's back up. How do we do something with this? What good is this to you? A couple of questions, maybe some answers. Here's the first thing I want us to learn. Number one, <clears throat> you, number one, you can't stay on a mountaintop. Can't you stay there? Go off on a retreat, you always got to come home. When I was a student, would love to go to camp because at camp, you're, you're preaching, you felt strong, you people praying for you, you're supported, all your friends are there, they're at least acting like Christians. When you come home, it's harder. Y'all caught that as I put it in there, didn't you? Yeah, so it, it, it's easier there, away. It's harder to come down. I mean, up on top of the mountain, they've had the most spectacular event that has ever happened to any of them there. Remember what Peter said way back in verse 5? Peter said, it is, man, it is good for us to be here. Let me build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Let's, let's stay here. But you can't stay there, can you? Nick and Meredith on honeymoon. They can't stay there. They got to come back here. He wants a paycheck. He got to come back here. They had to come down the mountain of transfiguration, come down into the world of sin, come down into this world of brokenness, come down into this world of death, and this is where we live. Not on the mountain. We live here. I got a friend who's an Ulsterman in Northern Ireland named Brian Black. His wife uh, fell in a parking lot last week, and uh, she has two brain bleeds, has been in a coma. He's in Ireland now. That's where they live. He's an Irishman, uh, an Ulsterman. And a Presbyterian pastor, a friend of mine, has been here, preached for me. And, and so I'm thinking about this passage. What does this say to him as he sits by his wife? And, and praise that her eyes will open. There's a couple at our church whose wife is very sick, uh, feels like the, it may be terminal, but at least it's a hard disease, and he's, they sit together. They're not able to come to church anymore. They can watch. And so uh, what does this say to them? There'll be a funeral here tomorrow afternoon, our own church. What does this there are many of you sitting in this room right now. A whole lot of you are facing a week where you've got to manage something terribly unpleasant at a place you hate to go. What does this say to you? How are you going to make it through? How? How? I'm going to give you just a couple of suggestions. A couple of suggestions. What are you going to think on? Here's the first one. Think. I want you to think, as a Christian, think on the work of Christ. Think on the work of Christ. Here is the picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that is written. Moses is there. Elijah is there. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Think of his kingship. Think Jesus is king. Think of what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Think on the work of Christ. You Put your mind there. Or let's press it a little further. 
Let's think on the hope in Christ. Think on the hope that you have in Christ. I mentioned it briefly, but think on His, His, His perfect life that He lived in our place, that you live and sin and do terrible things and rebel against God as a human. Jesus never did. His fellowship is perfect, but He didn't just do that for Himself. He was already in perfect fellowship. As a perfect man, He did that in our place. Or, or think about the death of Jesus on the cross. You ever feel guilty for your sins? Think of Jesus dying in your place. Think of the, the satisfaction of knowing that your guilt can be taken away because someone else took the punishment for you. Or think about the resurrection. Look, for all of us here that are aging, and that's, by the way, all of us, some of us are aging faster than others. Some of us are aging. You're at the top limit right now. So you came in pretty decrepit today. Now look, if you're decrepit, I want you to listen now. You ain't always been decrepit, but you are now. And we bemoan getting old and our body's breaking down. I do that too. My, my, everything hurts. So I, I, just, I just want to say to you, I want you to think on the work of Christ, the hope of not just the death, but the resurrection of Jesus. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, when you die one day, you are given a resurrection body that is completely perfect. It's good for you to think. Sometimes God gives us these afflictions so we don't get too comfortable here. It's good, good for us to hurt in this world so we long for another one. Think on the, the hope of Christ. Think on the endurance. The endurance you have in Christ. I mean, even in this text, he tells the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be treated with contempt. So, so he suffered, but he does so vicariously in our place. If you suffer, he suffered for you to take the sting out of that suffering. If you are treated ugly, in contempt, talked terribly to, Jesus was talked terribly to in our place. It's, it's good for you. Look, I, I know you know the Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every athlete has stolen and used it improperly. Don't, don't say that and go and try to deadlift 500 pounds. You're going to feel like the Bible's not true. Not the Bible's problem, it's your problem. Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.13 in that context is Paul saying, look, I know how to walk through hard times, how to have no money, how to have some money, how to be mistreated. I know how to endure. It is, I can do all things because Christ strengthens me. You, you have endurance. Think on that. Think what Christ has done for you. Think on the love of Christ. When you feel unloved in the world, think how... How Jesus loves his enemies. You were once an enemy of God. You are not any longer because he purchased you. Think of the love of Jesus. Think of how he loves you. Think of some of you have, have carried weight, the weight of sin into this room, the weight of it. You should think on the forgiveness that God gives us through what Jesus has done for you. Think of the call of Christ, the call. That, that Christ has called you into a life of struggle 
and you are there to live your life of struggle and waiting and pain and hurt for the glory of God. You've been given a condition you didn't want. God gave it to you so you would live in that terrible condition for the glory of God. So you think of the call, the, the higher call that God has placed on you in Christ. Look, you, you can't stay on the mountaintop. But even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with you. The glory of Jesus. That's what this is for. The glory of Jesus is good for our soul. Can't stay on the mountain. Let me give you a second thing to consider. <clears throat> Number two. I'm going to pick up the speed a little bit. Number two. You need a full gospel. A, or you might want to write it a different way. Maybe I should have said it like this. You need a complete gospel. Let me, let me show you where I get that. Coming down the mountain, verses 9 and 10. Notice what Jesus tells them as they are coming down the mountain and the unusual time limit that he places on it in verse 9. They were coming down the mountain. He charged them, tell no one what they had seen until, there's a time limit, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why? Why didn't they come down and say, you can't believe what we saw? Jesus knows if people hear this, they're going to want to make him a king on earth. That's not why he's come. That would have been an incomplete gospel. There would have been some gospel truth in it. It's an incomplete gospel. Jesus says, you tell this when we are on the other side of the cross. The crucifixion, resurrection, then you can tell it. We need a whole, we need a whole life gospel. Now, when I say gospel, and this, just briefly, this is what I mean. Just so we're sort of clear when we talk about gospel. When I say gospel, I mean the Bible teaches that God has created all of us in His image, including you. You were created in the image of God, but the image of God in you has been disfigured by your own sin. Sin is a rebellion against God. So we stand in rebellion. Rebels are condemned. That condemnation doesn't have to last, though, because God is also loving, good, and kind. That loving kindness is shown most in Jesus, his son. So here's the Christian gospel now. Jesus is given to us as the one who lives in our place. So all the sins that you've committed, rebellion, all of that, Jesus lives perfectly. Even on your best day, your filthiness, the Bible says, is, your, your righteousness is filthy rags. The Bible says, Jesus is not like that. His righteousness is perfect. So Jesus lives perfectly, and the cross is there as a means of punishing criminals. We are criminals for God. But the gospel, the gospel story is that someone has come to take our place. Although as criminals we deserve punishment, that is justice, Jesus stands and takes that. That's the cross. That's why the cross at the cross, Jesus dies in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead. And the promise of the gospel is, if you will put your faith in Christ and him alone, in the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, you become a Christian. That, that's how you're saved. So that's the gospel. That is the full gospel. And that gospel is transformative. 
It changes. If, if, you didn't, if you didn't experience change, you didn't experience Jesus. Amen. That, that transformation is obvious. We don't have to wonder. That there's no cheap grace in the Bible. There, there is no raising a hand or being baptized and nothing happened. If that's the case, what you got was wet, not saved. When Christ gets a hold, there's, there's, I don't have to wonder, you see. Now, now, this is not legalism. Legalism is you checking off the boxes and keeping the rules and thinking that's going to get you in. That's not legalism. This is grace. This is you saying, yeah, I, I have miserably failed. And it's only by the grace of God given to me in Jesus that I am ever accepted by God. This, this right here reminds us, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus tells them, don't tell this until the resurrection. Why? Because you need a full, a full-throated, undiluted gospel. Let me give you a third thing. <clears throat> third thing we learn here is that telling the truth is costly. Some of you already, you're, 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 you're feeling this now. Telling the truth is costly. Let me show you where I get that. In verses 11 and 12 in this passage, the disciples ask about Elijah. What they ask in verse 11 and 12. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But in verse 13, Jesus references Elijah, but he's talking about John the Baptist. Why? Because Matthew 11, Jesus tells us John the Baptist was Elijah. So, so he's calling back to that. And he says in verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come, but they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Now, do you remember Mark 6? So what does Jesus mean, they did to him whatever they pleased? John the Baptist came and he told Herod, who was the king, Herod, that what you've done by taking your brother's wife is wrong. It is not lawful. It embarrassed the king. It embarrassed her. And so through a series of events, the king used his stepdaughter after doing some sort of seductive dance. She asked her mom for John the Baptist's head, and John the Baptist because King Herod would have been embarrassed in front of all of his friends, had his head cut off. That's what Jesus is talking about. Why did he have his head cut off? Because he told the king, what you're doing, you call yourself a Jew, what you're doing is not lawful. He spoke the truth. Amen. Now look, being truthful. So, sometimes people will say, when you speak truth, you're not being kind. Being truthful is the most loving thing you can do. When you see someone go to a water fountain and you know that the water pumped into that water fountain is coming out of the sewer and you say, don't drink that water. That is a loving thing to do. Now, let's just take it from the headlines. We live in a world with the headlines. When you, when you hear the headlines that speak of of gender and sexuality and speaks of what it means to actually be a man or to be a woman and the roles of men and women or when, when transgenderism has just been just put on every headline and when we say 
that God's good creation of a man and a woman has been given to us for human flourishing. It's not an unkind thing to say, don't drink that water. Don't drink that. When we speak of those things, we speak of of what God has given us. Look, Christians, Christians are going, we are going to need to get spiritually, mentally, and emotionally tougher. To, to, to speak truth in love, but to speak it nonetheless. And to take that truth and make sure we're, we're not in a culture war. We are trying to win the culture, but you win the culture through truth, not tricks. The, the truths that we're presenting from the Bible, they're beautiful. They're good. They're, they're for human flourishing. But some of you know right now, I mean, you... You felt that in schools, you felt that where you work, it is increasingly, it's increasingly costly to speak truth. When you think of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation after 1517 and the Diet of Worms when he spoke in front of the Holy Roman Emperor, and Martin Luther said, my, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Or, or we've sung the song, a, a mighty fortress is our God. You know that great song? The very end of that song, Martin Luther, who the words were real for him, Martin Luther says, our, our bodies, they may kill, God's truth abideth still. The truth of the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ, the, the power of grace, the wrath of God, God that's overcome by the love of God. The the goodness of a Christian family. I mean, even if you're you're single, just listen, just to know the goodness of God's creating a man and woman of a Christian family. The the need to abolish abortion. The, the, The gospel picture of adoption. These are things that we hold on to. They are truths that oftentimes will be costly. Tell the truth is costly, but the glory of Jesus is good for our souls, and it makes it so that you don't have to stay on the mountain. You come down off the mountain. We grab a hold of the full gospel. We need a full gospel. We come to grips with telling the truth and know that it's costly. Let me give you a fourth <clears throat> lesson I think you can learn here, that we can learn. Number four, you can stake your life on the Bible. Let me show you where I get that. Go back to the conversation They're coming down the mountain in verse 11 and 12, and they're asking questions of Jesus. They ask about John the Baptist. Why does it say that Elijah must come? He'll answer that Elijah does come. And then verse 13, Elijah has come. Now what Jesus is reflecting back on is the very last book of the Old Testament and in the very last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, And the last two verses in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi prophesies. The Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great day of the Lord comes. And Jesus says, that was John the Baptist. And now if he came, then the great day of the Lord is here. 
Come on down a little further. They ask a question. Jesus turns it back, verse 12. And he asked them, Now why is it written, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer so many things and be treated with contempt? How is that written of the Son of Man? 700 years before that, the psalmist would write in Psalm 22, 6 and 7, I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths and me. They wag their heads. Or, or Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 53. And what Jesus is saying is, what is written is what will happen. Now, them coming down the mountain. They are coming down the mountain to go to Jerusalem and fulfill everything written about the coming Jesus. Now, why did I tell you all of that? The connection of Malachi and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 with what you have here is that you can trust God's Word. This is given to us for food. Brothers, you, brothers and sisters, you need to be consumed, food. A steady diet of God's Word in your life. Having a meal every single day. That food will feed your soul. God's Word is the compass for your life. It's going to give you direction so you know where to head when you're not sure what the next step is. God's Word is healing for your life. When you've been mistreated and abused, it is here to, to heal the wounds. God's Word is strength for your life when you feel like you've been stripped and weakened. God's Word is comfort. I'm thinking about Brian sitting by his wife and he open up the middle of this Bible, go to the Psalms, just read and pray and think on the Psalms. You need, to, you need to love this word and learn it and discipline and drink and trust and defend and uphold and live by and die for if necessary. All right, four things. Let me give you a fifth one, number five. <clears throat> I'll sum it up with this. Number five, the cross of Christ is the center the cross of Christ is the center. Verse 9 and verse 12. Verse 9, he charged them, don't tell anybody until the resurrection. Resurrection precludes a crucifixion. That you've got to have the crucifixion and resurrection to make everything else make sense. Verse 12, he says, why did the, why did the Bible say this? Why was it prophesied about the Son of Man that he would suffer many things, be treated with contempt? Why? When they came down off the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus carried with him the entire weight of redemption, and he would carry that all the way to the cross. And at the cross, this is the Christian gospel, at the cross, the wrath of God meets the love of God. At the cross, the justice of God meets the grace and mercy of God in the middle, right there on Jesus. He takes wrath, gives us love. And here on the mountain of transfiguration is the glory of God the Son. And that glory, the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, that's what gets you through. You see, the, the glory of Jesus is good for our souls. And I'll end it with this question. How then is your soul? With that on your mind, you join me for a moment of prayer and commitment. With your heads bowed this morning, let's go to the Lord.
in a moment of prayer and commitment with your heads bowed, pray with me. If you are in the valley, if you are hurt, if you feel hopeless, if you are depressed, if you are worried, if you've been abused, it's not the end. The glory of Jesus is good for your soul. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning, talk to a pastor. They're down front here. If you want to come and pray, come with somebody from your community group or discipleship group. If you want to pray together, maybe you have someone you'd like to pray for, now it's the time to do it when we sing. Father, thank you for your word that is good. Thank you for your spirit that is present. Thank you for the glory of Jesus that gives us hope. Thank you for this reminder today. Lord, I pray you strengthen our hearts that you would remove the, the weight of sin. God, I pray that we walk out of here sensing your presence, rejoicing in the goodness that you've given us in Jesus. Help our church, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.